0: Dear Lord, thank you, Lord, for a church that values your word. Thank you, Father, for the hearts of the men and women here that uh, you have given to us for this service that they provide. And thank you for the opportunity to serve you, Father, to have opportunities to step into one role or another. It's uh, easy, Father, to forget what we have and think only of what we don't have. And in some places, Father, the churches are so big you can't serve anywhere for there's Hardly a place that doesn't already have workers. Um, but in a small church, Father, there's always needs. And I thank you for that. For it draws us closer to you and it, it leads us into service. Father, thank you for the mystery and the wisdom and the, the power of your word. Thank you, Father, that uh, you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Now, Father, as we open your book, we study a new one today. We open up the book of Ruth. We come to it, Father, with eager anticipation. We know that there's something here for us. Many of us know the story, Father, or have heard it. But, Father, we know the depths of your, of your word just have no limit. And so we're asking, Father, that as we open it again this morning, you would show it to us once again, but in a new way, in a deeper way, so that we would, uh, we would gain from it what you intend. Father, challenge us as well. Challenge us to be students that listen and do, not just hear. Challenge us, Father, to be those who would step out in a new walk according to what we learn. Challenge us, Father, to work harder for you in the days that remain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our study in the book of Judges is over, as you know. And please, no cheering or clapping. But but our journey through the time of Judges continues on today we're going to begin the study of ruth a small but powerful and important story in the bible the book of ruth has been called in fact one of the most important and beautiful short stories ever written never mind the bible but in all literature the german poet Goethe said ruth was the loveliest complete work on a small scale ever written another literary critic said that no poet in the world has ever written a more beautiful short story And W.F. Albright wrote that the delicacy of the story remains unsurpassed anywhere. Of course, Ruth, as we know, is also a book of Scripture, which means that it was inspired by the Spirit of God. And not only in the writing, the writing of it is certainly divine, but even the very events themselves were divinely appointed, the, the events that are portrayed in the book. The Lord orchestrated many details of this historical event and of the period, in order to create this powerful picture of his future plans for Israel and for the Gentiles. Now, the pictures that are embedded in the story of this book move outward in time like the concentric circles of a bullseye. So first, at the center of the bullseye, you have the story of Ruth itself, the story of a a small family in a time of trouble in Israel and how he moved them through the circumstances of the story. And now the story moves off of the literal events of Ruth and starts to portray other events through the lives and the circumstances of the characters. And that first ring outward is a picture of God's plan to provide a monarch for the nation. The monarch that he plans to bring will deliver Israel from anarchy and the self-destruction of the time of Judges. It's the solution to all that bad stuff that we've been talking about for so long in the book of Judges. That monarch is going to lead his people beyond merely doing what is right in their own eyes, into a life of serving God, at least to some extent. That picture is closest to the bull's eye, in my analogy, because it's closest in time to the events of Ruth. We're only a few generations at this point away from the fulfillment of this promise of a coming monarch. And as you may know, David is the one that we're speaking about here. David will come and rule Israel and provide a degree of stability and a degree of righteousness to the rule of the people that is lacking in this time of judges that's the first ring but as we go through this story we're going to have to go even further in looking at pictures there's a yet another picture embedded in this story and that's one ring outward again from this first one it's the second one now and that's a story of the coming messiah who will redeem sinners both jew and gentile from the curse of the law Just as we saw in the time of Judges, sin is the ever-present scourge in this nation. It leads them to doing what is right in their own eyes, but not what is right in God's eyes. You know, we've seen this problem now for 21 chapters in the book of Judges, and it just went on and on and on. So God tells a story now in this little book of Ruth that follows Judges through the characters of the book, like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and Obed and others. And through these characters, he's going to explain to us how God will eventually save sinners from the condemnation that they rightfully deserve for all the terrible stuff you see happening in their culture. In fact, the story of Ruth... Reveals more clearly than perhaps any other Old Testament story how the Lord will address sin through a Redeemer. Some have said that Ruth preaches the gospel more clearly than any other Old Testament book through the lives of these characters. This second story is the next ring in our bullseye because the fulfillment of these events are some distance away from the age of Ruth. They're farther away than the fulfillment on the monarch, that is David. Now, most people who teach the book of Ruth, as I've experienced it, would stop with what I've just provided to you. They would teach Ruth. They would teach how it perhaps prefigures the coming of David. And then they might go, and certainly many do go, to the next level. And they talk about Jesus being pictured in these events. And that's all appropriate. But there is yet one more ring to this story that is often overlooked. The ring that reveals how the Lord will bring our age to an end and how he will fulfill all promises to Israel and the nations of the earth in the last days of this age. So, just as in our second story about Jesus as Redeemer, this prophetic story is told symbolically as well, through the characters, through the circumstances of the story. But since this third story I'm talking about, this third picture, deals with events that are far in the future, distant events from Ruth's day... It sits at the outermost ring of our bullseye. So you already get a sense of just how complex and layered the story of Ruth truly is. It's only four chapters. It's a story you can sit and read in maybe 12 minutes. And yet it's telling a story, many stories really, that go from Ruth's day into times that have yet to transpire even for us. So that's all to say it's four chapters, but it's going to take a while. Now, in all three of these picture stories that sit on top of the story of Ruth, in all three of these, the central theme will be the same. God's faithfulness to redeem his people and give them rest. In fact, the book of Ruth is a chiasm. And I won't take much time on this this morning, but I just want to set the stage for this for future weeks. A chiasm or a chiastic structure is a way of organizing a narrative in literature, an outline, if you will, but chiasms are different than the way we typically outline. We break down a thought into its subcomponents A1, A2, B, B1, B2. Chiastic structures work a little differently. They take a thought, they build to it through a series of progressive points, and then once they reach the main thoughts, the main point, they back out, they reverse out using the same points in reverse order. So the the organized outline would be A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. And you match the two points on either end. So the A's on either end are talking about the same thing, but maybe from a different perspective. The B's will be the same. The idea of a chiastic structure is that turning point is supposed to be our focus it's the main idea and so when you find chiasms in scripture your idea is to find where is the turning point that's what's going to tell me what the main idea is the turning point happens about midway through the book as you'd expect all four chapters form this chiasm we see ruth being provided a husband in this story which leads her into rest and security but through her the lord is going to grant to her mother-in-law Naomi, a child as well, which will become her source for rest and security in a new son. Through that son, eventually the line gets us to the king, David, who will grant Israel a time of security and rest. Through David, we get the line to Messiah, who will provide to mankind a time of secure, eternal rest. And through the nation as a whole, we eventually find the whole world redeemed in a kingdom of security and And rest. What do you think you're going to find at that turning point in the chiasm? You're going to find a verse in which you see security and rest being discussed. So there's clearly some organized thinking and structure to the way the book has been written as the spirit inspired. It's designed to teach many things at the same time. In many ways, you could say that most of what the Bible has to say to us in general can be found in the book of Ruth, at least in some way or another, symbolically. We have the story of God working through Israel. We have the story of God bringing a Redeemer. We have the story of how God is going to bring this age to an end and put a new kingdom in its place. These are all elements of a story of the book of Ruth. All right, perhaps you're beginning to see just how amazing this one little story is. So as we look at this account, we need to understand these three stories. Because these three stories are woven together in the events and in the characters, we'll spend time on each thread at various points along in the study so we'll begin each chapter looking at the primary story that is of ruth and the characters of the story but as we go we'll take time here and there to look at those other rings of the bullseye and i won't always do all three in the same order i'm not going to make it quite that mechanical i don't want to lose the the beauty of the story and the process of dissecting it you know so keeping track of these three storylines and the central story of ruth that's my job for your sake And it's going to require your careful attention. And I know in this room some are prone to taking notes, others are prone to just listen, some have Bibles, perhaps some do not, that's fine. But I would tell you, it wouldn't hurt, if you want to understand this book properly, it would not hurt to be a note taker during this study, because as I said, there are a lot of of threads here and they can get easily overlooked if you're not taking good notes. And as well, if you miss a week, be sure to listen to the recordings, that would be my encouragement to you. So with that background, let's begin we'll read the opening verses of chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephraites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Melon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Well, the story reaches the negative climax pretty quickly. We get all the bad news up front. That's, that's one good thing about the stories. So the rest of it's all going up from there. Uh, as I mentioned repeatedly, the story of Ruth is set in the time of Judges. And there is some disagreement over exactly when this story took place during the 300 years of that period of, of Israel's history. There's good evidence that it took place in the first half of those 300 years. And here's why. One of the main characters in this story... A man named Boaz, who we have yet to be introduced to, he, Scripture says, is the son of Rahab. Now, you remember the name Rahab, don't you? She was the harlot living in the city when the people of Israel came in under Joshua. And she was the one who comforted the spies of Israel when they were in the town spying out the land. Remember this story vaguely? Well, that all took place in the book of Joshua. So we know that Boaz's mother was a young child as the nation of Israel first entered the land, and then Joshua led them in the land for several decades before the time of Judges began. Boaz is clearly an older man in this story, so perhaps by the time this account is happening, we're 80 to 100 years into the time of Judges. So this is clearly in the early part of the time of Judges. Now, regardless of the specific timing, the meaning of verse 1, though, is really very clear, especially for those of us coming out of the book of Judges. This account is the third summary of those three stories that end the book of Judges. Remember, the first two we studied at the end of Judges. Those first two summaries were the ones that gave us all the bad news about what was going on in the age. This one follows immediately in the book of Ruth. This is our final footnote to the same period of history. And the good news is this story is nothing like the first two. Well, the first two had tales of hatred and violence and treachery. This story is anything but like those. This is an account of love, faithfulness, self-sacrifice, and upright behavior. It's a story that represents the hearts of God's people who were living in an age and among a community of people who did not follow God. This is the story of the remnant, if you will. While we were seeing what the community at large was doing and their disobedience to God, there was thankfully some within the people who were doing the right thing. And now we get to see what their lives were like. So that's the backdrop of Ruth. It's a time when men were doing what was right in their own eyes, and as we saw in the book of Judges, the people's sin would often move the Lord to act against them as a result. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, 15. He said to them, You are those, speaking to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We need to understand... God would act to judge Israel at moments along that path, if you remember, whenever they went astray into idolatry. And he did it in a variety of ways. In this story, you see one of those ways. In the first events of this story, you see a Jewish family from Bethlehem fleeing the land due to famine. And it starts with the phrase, a certain man took his wife and his two sons and sojourned. In Moab, notice he's described as a certain man of Bethlehem. Now clearly, some of you must remember that phrase from our Judges study, right? Isn't that exactly the way the last two stories in the book of Judges began? A certain man of Bethlehem. All three center on a man from Bethlehem. And so that's telling us that we're to understand this story is connected to the other two. That the writer is trying to make sure we see these as all part of the same setting. In this case, the man is Elimelech. He takes his family, he leaves Bethlehem, and as I said, he does it because there's a famine. And we've seen elsewhere in scripture that famines are dire circumstances, and if you depend on the land for your livelihood, a famine is a terrifying thing in your life, because your survival may be at risk as a result of not being able to grow things. And when that happens, it forces migration. People will look elsewhere for their food. But God is working here to discipline the sin of Israel. God is bringing the famine for that reason. In Deuteronomy 11:13, God told Israel in advance, this is the kind of thing He would do. He says to them, "...it shall come about, if you listen obediently to My commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil." He will give grass in your fields for your cattle And you will eat and be satisfied Then he says this Beware that your hearts are not deceived And that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain And the ground will not yield its fruit And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you So the Lord told Israel before they ever entered the land That if they gave in to idolatry They'd know famine and now you see famine in this land and we know what's happening during the time of judges and we remember from our study that in the time of judges idolatry was the key issue so we put two and two together and we come to the conclusion that this is not just your random everyday ordinary casual famine this is a judgment from god on the land because of their idolatry in their hearts this man elimelech he decides he needs to flee and go to moab That is further evidence of people doing what is right in their own eyes. Moab is the historical enemy of Israel. You may remember this story as well from Genesis. The story of Lot and his daughters. Lot's living in Sodom. God plans to destroy the city. Lot being righteous. God allows for a way to rescue Lot and his family. They come out of the city, minus mom who made a bad mistake of looking back. And the three, Lot and his two daughters, are now by themselves, and they're so desperate to have a son, to have the continuation of their family, they see no other opportunities. Not that they look very hard, apparently. And in desperation, his ungodly daughters come up with this terrible plan of getting him drunk in Genesis 19, taking advantage of him so as to become pregnant by him, ancestrally. And the sons that are produced from that ancestral relationship become the fathers of two of Israel's greatest enemies. Ammon and Moab. The nations of the Ammonites and the Moabites come out of those two sons. So here we have a Jew, a suffering under God's judgment for sin, for the people's sin. He is seeking refuge from God's judgment with Israel's enemies. He is responding to God's chastisement by running from God, not returning to God in repentance. Now, obviously, Elimelech is not personally responsible for all the sin in Israel. I'm not saying that. But his behavior is certainly a part of it. And his response is giving us evidence that, just like we've heard, people just did what was right in their own eyes, including Elimelech. There's no reason for us to assume that the Lord wanted Elimelech and his family to flee the land that God gave them, to go into the arms of his enemies, to Israel's enemies, in the middle of this famine. Instead, it's apparent they're running from God's discipline. They're seeking a human solution to a divinely created problem. And running from God, friends, never improves your situation with God. Whatever trials, whatever tribulations we encounter with God, nothing gets better without God than we have with Him. Elimelech and his family are suffering in Bethlehem during times of famine certainly as a result of something god was at work doing for good ultimately for good but that suffering is the direct result of their disobedience the people's disobedience so the judgment is deserved and god in his response is trying to motivate them to better things and it could only have that effect if they would allow it to do that work in their hearts just consider the same kind of situation from the perspective of a parent for a moment if you ground your child or if you remove some some privileges from your child you're doing so i presume in the hope of motivating that child to be more obedient in the future than they have been in the past that's the reason for the punishment right now i want you to imagine what would you think if your child circumvented those restrictions and escaped your discipline in some fashion are things going to be better or worse for that child once you discover their circumvention you would understand now how god viewed alemelech's choice to flee into Moab He's trying to avoid the discipline that God has brought, rightly so, for good purposes. Now you're beginning to see the negative effects of this choice almost immediately in the text, because it says, as they go into Moab, Elimelech, and then his wife, Naomi, and his sons, within a relatively short period of time, the patriarch dies. Elimelech dies. Isn't this ironic? He fled Bethlehem to save his life. He goes into the land of his enemies to die. That's a very ironic turn of events. I think God is using that to make a commentary, don't you think? And it's even more ironic when you understand what the name Bethlehem means. The name Bethlehem means place of bread. So, get this. Elimelech leaves the place of bread, seeking bread. He flees from death only to find death. That's exactly what you find, by the way, when you flee God's love. And yes, discipline is a form of love. So when God disciplines His children, He does it just as a loving Father would do it. When you run from that love, when you run from that discipline, when you seek refuge somewhere in the world, you should expect to find even less of what you are seeking to obtain. You think it's bad to be under God's trials and discipline because of your sin? Try walking away from Him and seeing how that's going to go. It's not going to get better. You'll find more of what you're trying to escape. In its place, you'll see only an increase in the sadness that your sin produced in the first place. But if you withstand the trial, if you concern yourself with obedience, if you think twice about why you're in your circumstances and use that as motive to come back to God in a repentful heart, watch what he does with that. Because, friends, as a father does with his own children, when your son or daughter responds well to the discipline you hand out, you are eager to bring them back into your arms and move onward from that moment. No one delights in continuing the punishment after it's had its good effect. But the father's sin is not only going to take his life. Look at the toll on his family. Elimelech's choice to bring his family into the land resulted in his sons marrying Moabite women. Malon and Chilion, they marry Orpah and Ruth. And that decision was another act contrary to God's law. In Deuteronomy 23, we're told this, no Ammonite or Moabite, the two groups we're talking about, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, The Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Speaking about those two people groups. So obviously the law precludes people from seeking peace with Moabites. And friends, in case you're confused, marrying them means seeking peace with them. Okay, So when they seek a union with Moabite women, they're violating Deuteronomy chapter 23. Furthermore, the law prescribes that Jews can never marry from among those of the Gentile nations of Canaan. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I won't read it for the sake of time, but if you look at the first three or four verses of chapter 7 in Deuteronomy, the Lord specifically commands Israel that they cannot marry Moabites, among others. So, the sons now have acted directly contrary to the word of God in marrying these two women. Now, obviously, the roots of their mistake trace back to their father's sinful choice to move the whole family to that region in the first place. Because now the boys are living in Moab, and they get to the point where they're ready for wives, they lift their eyes and they look around, and what kind of women do they see around them? All they see are Moabites. Again, that doesn't excuse their choice to marry outside of Israel, but you can see how the father's sin contributed to the boys being in a situation to sin themselves. And as a result of all this bad decision-making, all this running from God and from His law, The family suffers even more loss. Now you find that the two sons die, it says here, after about ten years. That's after they'd married two women. And so, you now are left with this family of women. You have Naomi, the mother. You have Orpah and Ruth, the daughters-in-law. But you have no men in the family anymore. I mean, what's ironic is this family is now reduced to three widows who are not blood-related. Nobody in the family is actually related to anyone. Now, let's take a moment to look at this circumstance from Naomi's point of view, just briefly. And when you look at it from Naomi, she's the wife of Elimelech, the widow of this family, the matriarch. Now, when you look at it from her perspective, it's all bad. It's all bad. She's been thrust out of her own land. That means she's abandoned her inheritance in the land. She doesn't know what's happened to it. She's destined to wander now in the land of her enemies. While she's there, her family has dwindled and weakened to the point of almost non-existence seeming to disappear and she has no prospects now for provision a widow in this time and in this age was the most destitute person you could find maybe save only a cripple You have no way to make a living. Generally, women could not earn a living very easily. They could not own property under most rules. They would have had no benefactor generally. They're kind of damaged goods to anyone who might be looking for a wife. There's just no benefit to anyone. She doesn't come with a dowry. She's going to be left alone, penniless, and with very little future. Very easily, a widow under her circumstances would starve to death unless she found some benefactor or the mercy of someone to care for her that's Naomi now if we reverse the lens of that comparison for a moment I want you to look at the circumstances from the perspective of the Moabite women here that is Orpah and Ruth from their point of view they've suffered loss too but their circumstances are quite different by law they are prohibited from ever entering into the assembly of Israel we just read that from Deuteronomy that is to say they could never join in worship in the nation of Israel they could never go before the tabernacle They could never participate in a Jewish feast. And now you might wonder, well, what does that matter? They're Moabites, they don't care. Well, exactly. They would never have the opportunity to know the living God. They would never have the opportunity to be brought into the family of God, to understand the things of God, as we would say today, to be saved because of who they are and where they lived. They were strangers to the covenants, They were outside the grace of God. They were living in the world and without knowledge or love of Him. That's who they were. But what's happened? Now, what was impossible by law has been made possible by grace. By grace, that is to say, by an unmerited favor, these women, these two widows now, through the actions of a disobedient Jewish family, they've been brought into the knowledge of God. They've been brought out of this little corner of the Gentile world and into an exposure of God. Over these ten years, they, through this disobedient family, have been introduced to the living God. They never could have gone into Israel on their own. They never could have found God by their own seeking. They couldn't go to God in Israel, but God brought Israel to them. So while God was holding a Jewish family accountable for their sin under Jewish law, He was also extending grace to these Gentiles through that association. He was turning all things to good for those who loved him and are called according to his purpose. From their point of view, they may have lost a husband, but they've gained access to the God of all creation. Now, as you can probably sense at this point, this is one of those moments in our teaching in which I'm going to introduce one of those outer rings of the story of Ruth, and in this case, the one of Jesus being pictured as a redeemer here. You have this woman, Naomi. She stands as a picture of the Jewish people. She's a Jewish wife while her widowed daughter-in-laws represent Gentiles in this comparison. So, they picture two groups of people living on the earth. Naomi, the Jewish people who are in covenant with the living God, and the Gentile women representing the nations of Gentiles, who are outside the knowledge of God during this time. The Jewish people are a people God created out of nothing. He created them out of Abraham's son, Isaac, and they were established supernaturally by a promise. And therefore, friends, the Jewish people exist for one reason. The only reason they exist is to accomplish God's program of redemption. Through the Jewish people, the Lord brings into existence everything required for our redemption. Through the Jewish people came the covenants of promise on which our salvation is based. And then through them He brought the law. And through them He brought the tabernacle service, which picture and explain the need for redemption. Later, He brings through them all the prophets, and therefore all the word of God came through the Jewish prophets, including the New Testament, came through Jews. And eventually... Israel brings the messiah himself the one who's foretold so everything for our redemption comes through Israel but as God contemplated his plan he predetermined that he would work through this group of people Israel to bring all nations to know him he wanted to preclude the possibility that he might have selected some existing nation let's say for example like Egypt or the Babylonians and said to them, Hey, guess what? i got a plan for redemption. I need a people through whom I'm going to bring my word and my prophets and and the Messiah, etc. I'm going to use you, you Babylonians, you Egyptians. Had God selected one of those existing people, then we can assume those people would have started to claim they were inherently better than any other people. We might have assigned them that significance, in fact. And as a result, they could steal a little of God's glory because they could claim to be inherently necessary to the plan of God. So God doesn't want that to happen. He precludes that from happening. So what does He do? He makes a people of His own out of nothing. Calls them the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. And just to make sure that you and I don't think that they had something inherently good to offer, He says this about them in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. He says to them, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then He says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He says, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, what he's saying is, you ain't all that. You were important, because I made you important, but you weren't important before I found you. You didn't exist before I found you. The point was to find you so I could use you for something of my own glory. And these women, Naomi and the two Gentile women, are providing a nice picture for us of how the relationship is today for us between the Jewish people and all Gentile peoples. The Gentiles in the story had no opportunity to know God until and unless they were introduced to God through the Jewish people or through, as we would say, through the outworking of the Jewish nation. Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians 2.11. He says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. So by the grace of God, Gentiles are to have an opportunity to know and follow the living God. And we came to that awareness by means of what God did through the Jewish people. And so when you read your Bible, friends, you're reading words delivered to you by Jewish men. Uh, when you come to know your Savior, you're receiving a Jewish Messiah. When we glory in God's forgiveness, we're rejoicing over Jewish covenants into which we were grafted in By faith. That's what you're rejoicing in. And that mercy you begin to see here with these two Gentile women, women who were strangers to the things of God, but now through one woman, through a family, they've been introduced into the things of God. Now the question is, what's going to happen to them? Are both of them going to follow this opportunity? Are both going to pursue what they've been exposed to? Or will any of them? Next week we're going to answer that question and we're going to introduce our third story next week that is of the end times. We'll begin to weave that into because even in what we've just covered there is also a story present of things that are yet to come. And the names of the characters even the number 10 in that about 10 years all factors into an understanding of how this is picturing the end times and things that are yet to happen. We'll start back in that part of chapter 1 next week. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the reminders and for the encouragement of the book of Ruth, the reminders, Father, this morning that I took away for knowing that as you you may come into our lives when necessary at times to discipline us and show us the things that need to change, Father. I hope you'd also encourage us to stay by you and to accept what comes and knowing that it brings good things in the end, not to run from it, not to seek solace somewhere in the world. And I also thank you, Father, for the encouragement that we see how hard you have worked through how long you have been at work and giving us the opportunity to know you through a people that often refuse to follow you. And Lord, your faithfulness is why we have what we have. So we have encouragement to know that even as we are faithless, you will remain faithful. And that's, uh, that's all we need. Thank you, Father, for this study. I pray in the weeks to come, Father, you'd... Uh, you just direct our hearts into the details of it. You'd help us keep it straight in our mind. You'd help us absorb all that there is for us here and let it do its work in us. Thank you for a place that studies your Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.